All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Hey, all right. Welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor, and boy, have I got a fantastic episode for you this week. But hey, don't I every week? So to kick things off this week, I'll be talking with a Key West legend. Captain R.T. Trossett joins me in the inshore offshore studio today, and I cannot wait for that conversation because Captain Trossett is known as the Dean of Key West Guides and is probably the most knowledgeable guide on the lower keys. And after Captain Trossett shares all kinds of Florida Keys fishing wisdom with us, let's take a bourbon break and I'll share some thoughts about New Riff Single Barrel Bourbon. And then I'm going to count down my top 10 popping corks. Hey, but before we get to all of that great content, I want to talk for a second about the importance of your local tackle shops to what we do as anglers. You know, there are a lot of small businesses that sell tackle all over the country. And there are, of course, those big box stores like Bass Pro, Cabela's, Dick's, Academy Sports, Walmart, and they all sell tackle too. Now, I think a lot of us do a lot more of our tackle shopping online these days and we certainly did during the COVID years. But here's the interesting thing that I just read the other day. Of the total tackle sales in freshwater fishing, about 80% of those sales were conducted in brick-and-mortar stores, and only about 11% were purchased online. I would have thought that the online purchases would have been a lot higher than that. And yeah, 80 and 11 only add up to 91%, but the remaining 9% are sold at trade shows and boat shows and things like that. Now, over on the saltwater side, the numbers aren't that much different, with 79% of tackle being sold in retail stores and 13% being sold online, with the remaining 8% being sold at trade shows and other events. And here's one other interesting thing about where we're buying our tackle. Of that 80% of brick-and-mortar sales on the freshwater side, 28% of those sales are coming from local retail stores, your local tackle shops. That's a good sign for the local stores. On the saltwater side, about 40% of tackle sales come from local businesses. Now, as much as I love the big box retailers, I think this is great that anglers continue to support local businesses to this extent. Hey, but all of that aside, we've got another great Rodcast for you today, so let's get to it. Welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get to casting. All right, my listening crew, we have got a great conversation lined up for this week. We are fortunate to have Captain R.T. Trossett with us today. Now, Captain Trossett is known as the premier guide running out of Key West, in fact, I've seen him referred to as the Dean of Key West Guides, and since I'm only the fishing professor, I guess I am outranked here today. Captain Trossett has been guiding out of Key West since 1974. He was the first charter captain to guide anglers to 100 IGFA world records and has over his career guided anglers to 239 IGFA world record uh, which is really an impressive resume, that, so much so that he really deserves to be promoted from dean to like provost or president or something. In 2004, Captain Trossett was honored with the IGFA Lifetime Achievement Award, and 30 years prior to that, he earned his degree from the University of Florida. That's right, Captain Trossett's a Gator, so you know I'm already a fan. Captain Trossett, it is an honor to have you on the Rodcast. Thanks so much for being here. I'm glad to be here. Speaking of deans, I... Uh, Dean Jones was my uh, uh, journalism professor. And the reason I think I became a fishing guy is he took me into his office one day and said that uh, he didn't graduate students that couldn't spell. <laughs> that was back before he had anything, you know, that was the dictionary. So, <laughs> you know, uh, my I did dad graduate college. Yeah. My dad has always said, I'm the only English professor he knows that invents his own spelling. So, and wasn't it great Mark Twain that said, damn the man that can only spell a word but one way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we usually begin by setting some context with some origin story stuff and some background information about our guest. 
So could you tell us a little bit about the R.T. Trossett fishing origin story, how you got introduced to fishing, how you developed the passion, and when and why you made the decision to pursue angling as more than just a hobby? Well, uh, it was pretty easy to go fishing. My dad was in the boat business, and he didn't fish a lot, but he did take a lot of trips. And when he did, he always included the boys. And, you know, if you wanted to go, you could. If you didn't, you did. You go to the Bahamas or to the Keys. So it made it pretty easy uh, easy for me because I really loved the Keys when we went down there. And I guess we got started around Bay of Honda Bridge. Uh, we'd go dolphin fishing in the mornings and then come back in and tarpon fishing in the afternoons. I just fell in love with the place. So I pretty much early on, it decided uh, that I was going to be a guide in Key West. Uh, as my grandfather would say, you know, I'd fish in a mud puddle. And he he would buy me the lures when I was uh, 12, 13, 14. I'd go out and catch him uh, gator sea trout for breakfast. And that was the job I had to do before I got on the school bus. So I'd get up early and I got a love of fishing since then. That's a fantastic background. Now, your sons, Chris and Robert, now are in their livings on the water as well, with Chris running fishing charters and Robert's running the Fens Dive Center. How important has it been to you as a father and as a waterman to see your boys maintain these family ties with the water? It's been uh, it's been incredible. Robert went up to college and graduated from South Florida, but always wanted to own a business, so... He came back to Key West and started a small live shop and it's turned into a pretty big thing. He's got three boats that take dive charters out, uh, does that. And then Chris is, you know, he's me. He's, he's the guy that's going fishing every day, developing new things and just crushing it right now. So given that, and I'm sure you also get asked this a lot by a lot of folks about what it takes to become a charter guide. I was wondering what advice you might have for folks out there who are thinking about making guiding their profession. And I'm particularly interested in hearing your advice for guides thinking about taking up the trade in high pressure areas like Key West, where lots of people try their hands at guiding. Yeah, you really, it's a, it's hard right now. You know, when I came up, it was 1974. There was only, probably three light tackle guides down there at that point. So it wasn't a lot of competition and we had received a lot of business from the fishing clubs of Miami and the Miami Met tournament. But I'd suggest, you know, you, you probably got to come down and get mentored by somebody, uh, get taken under your arm and, and let them teach you the ropes about fishing, uh, how to handle customers uh, and how to acquire customers and how to keep customers. So, but it can be done. There's, there's several people have recently come down and have made quite a name for themselves. So after 48 years of guiding out of Key West, what are some of the biggest changes you've witnessed in fishing in the region? And I mean that in terms of the fisheries, in terms of the tackle, the industry, and so on. Well, you know, we've gone through so much. When I first started fishing there, Everything was pristine. I mean, like I said, there's only three guides, really. And pretty much had to place yourself. Uh, there wasn't a lot of methods known back then like we have now. So that was something that we were able to just kind of blend into. Um, like the shrimp boats, we found that accidentally. We did have the wrecks, but back then you had to do the time runs. Um, and that was only a few people knew that. And pretty much water quality now is, is something that's important. And we've just had, uh, uh, we, you know, I've been through it all. And that, and now the fishing is, is uh, it's still incredible because our methods have gotten better. But there is a definite lack of fish and, uh, or not lack of fish, but there's a, a decrease in the number of fish. Let's put it that way, not, not totally no fish. Well, from your, your observation, what would you say, excuse me, what would you say contributes to that reduction in the numbers of fish out there? Well, commercial fishing had a big impact. When the kingfish had the net boats, when they were really going strong, they pretty much wiped out that 
product, the Kings were gone. Not, you know, you'd still you could still catch them, but not like they were the 20 giant schools that wintered off Key West. Blackfin tuna was the same thing. They came down and netted it millions of pounds of them at one point. And I remember them sitting off end of the bar, just in giant schools circling around spawning. And I mean, 10,000 fish in a school probably. It, it was amazing. So I would say commercial fishing has hurt it a lot. Uh, I think everything that they're doing right now to uh, regulate some of the uh, fisheries is good. There's needs to be a little more science on some of it. And there needs to be like, we have a, a credible predator population that, you know, you some days you can't catch anything. You have I've been to. talking to a lot of guides about that, about how the shark population has come back so much that you can't get a fish to the boat. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and there has to be some kind of fine line because when we had long lining for sharks, uh, we never had that problem. And now we're seeing that and just saying uh, Key West Harbor, we've never had shark problems there. Maybe one hammerhead a year would get in there and, and hassle a couple of fish. But now we have packs of bull sharks that actually move the schools around like a school of pilsters. I mean, they get on them and they keep hounding them until one of them gets a shot. And of course, when we catch one, sometimes that they unfortunately get eaten that way. But there has to be some kind of, that's my biggest thing. There has to be something to curtail the, the number of predators like that. All right. So we're going to talk some fish, but before we talk fish, let's talk boats. And let me ask a kind of fan question first. Where does the name Spendrift come from? And why do you carry that name over to all of your boats as well as your charter company? Well, back in, when I lived in Cocoa, Florida, I was a surfer and the, spray off of a wave with a real heavy wind, the mist that comes off of a breaking wave is called spindrift. So I figured, you know, that was kind of fishy and or kind of oceany. So I don't know, I grabbed it and just kind of took. I think I've had about 28 boats called spindrift. Wow. I had a bunch of yellow fins and CVs and all, you know, I've had all, all kinds of boats. So you mentioned Yellowfin, and you were actually one of the first Yellowfin pro staff when Yellowfin was just getting started. And you're currently running a Yellowfin 39 offshore. Could you tell us a little bit about this boat, specifically your customizations to it? Definitely. We've got uh, three dive wells that hold 70 gallons of bait, which is equivalent to, uh, I would say, a couple hundred pounds of live pilchards. Or I can split my bait up in uh, speedos, blue runners, and pilchers, but you'll always find a, a well of pilchers on my boat. Um, boat has Simrad electronics and their state-of-the-art 19-inch screens. Uh, have autopilot, of course. I have an upstairs uh, driving station. It's not really a full tower. I stand on the console. I feel that gives me a little more stability. Uh, when I'm running and when I'm actually at rest because I don't have that center of balance above the console too high. And it does give me enough uh, height that I can actually uh, see better. And, and I do use it a lot for permit fishing and sight fishing for sailfish. Um, and then, you know, it's pretty much custom boat from there. A lot of stuff, uh, powder, this uh, powder coating, I have everywhere and I've gone to this black under my T-top, which cuts the glare tremendously for some reason. You would think it wouldn't, but over the years I've noticed that. So I've got a, a black underside T-top and underwater lights for swordfish and she's got it all. So I got to ask then about those trip 350 Suzuki's you're running. That's a lot of push. Could you uh, tell us about the decision to go with that much power and why so many larger offshore boats are being loaded with three and four and more big outboards these days? Yeah, the, you need to have enough horsepower to get the boat's momentum. I had a 36 with twin 350s, and it ran good, but it just didn't give that boat the momentum through the sea as this 36 got, has got. Uh, I didn't want four motors, just the maintenance and the cost of 
charter fishing with uh, that that extra engine, it really is a lot. So uh, that's the thing. I don't. I'm not really that fast. I, I run around 60 wide open, which is fast, and I can cruise anywhere 40 to 45 miles an hour, and I'm getting about one mile per gallon. I was going to say, running that much power burns a lot of fuel. And you've got, what, 564-gallon tank on that boat? And with yes. fuel prices in the lower keys now, between 5 and 5 and $6 a gallon, that's like three grand a tank. And I've been talking with and reading about how guides across the country are coming up with strategies for these increased fuel costs, like having the clients fill the tanks back up when they get back to the dock, pre-negotiating ranges and distance with clients so they get what they want from the trip but understand what they're paying for in fuel. And also a lot of people are just raising their prices to account for these climbing fuel costs. How have you and Captain Sleepy and your other guides at Spindrift accounted for these rises in fuel costs? Well, we, our first motto is we, when we go fishing, we're going to take you like we wanted to go fishing. So we're not going to try to hold back if we have to save some fuel. We do have certain limits. So I have like a limit down that is pretty much Marquesas, which is about 30 miles. Uh, uh, the price is set. And then uh, after that, you know, I could ask him if you want me to just tell you what I think it's going to be or, you know, you want to pay for the fuel. And of course, the Tortuga strips has got to be a set price of fuel. So... That's pretty much how we've handled it. Um, most of my my uh, guests, I've asked them numerous times which way they'd rather go, and most of them say, "Just charge me. Just I don't want to know what the extra is." So, but to be fair to people, it's you know it's better to just run off that set price, and then you can go as far as you want, and I don't mind. You imagine back in 74, if somebody had told you during your career, you'd be paying $6 a gallon for fuel? No, not at all. <laughs> I remember in Cocoa when I first, like a 16, and fuel was 29 cents a gallon. So. Yeah, when I was in high school, I worked the fuel dock at a marina, and I'd have a heart attack when a boat would take on $200 in fuel. That was me, was just overwhelming. My so, craziest part of the day is at the end of the day, you come back and how did you spend a thousand bucks? Yeah, all on gas. Yeah. Yes. All right, so let's shift from boats for a bit and talk tackle. Now, throughout your career as a guide, you've been known as a light tackle aficionado, which has clearly contributed to the numbers of IGF world records you've coached clients to. Could you talk about your commitment to light tackle and some of the parameters you set for yourself when you're thinking about how light you can go for specific species? Yeah, uh, well, first, I okay, yeah, the, I got lucky and got sponsored by some great companies at an early age. Uh, a guy by the name of Bob Montgomery, who was a big mentor to me, even back then, hooked me up with Shakespeare fishing. And I used a, that tackle for about four or five years, and it was the best tackle available back then. Um, then I, I got to move over to Penn, which I actually fished for twenty almost 20 years until they got sold out. But uh, to get back to your um, your light tackle. So Key West has so many fish. I mean, you, in the old days when we were doing this, you go to the wrecks and there'd be a hundred cobias on top. So you could say, let's let's try some really crazy stuff and we'll try a couple on two or we'll try a couple on four. Uh, we'll try to catch one on fly on this tippet. And if you lost one, you're able to just, all right, put another tip or put another tippet or leader on that rod and, we got another shot. I mean, it's, it's not like you were in a tar you're in a target rich environment. It wasn't like you were, you know, not able to catch fish. And one of our big keys that we did, and some of my anglers helped me out with this, but we uh, made index cards at first and we'd have each species of fish and we'd have what the current record is and what the pending record was and each line class. So we, we would go through those before, you know, our fishing day the night before usually, and we'd say, all right, we're going over here. We Obviously, we're going to see cobia. We might have some big mangrove snapper. Uh, we're going to have some African pompanos on this wreck. So we actually knew kind of what to uh, gear up for. And so this day, we still do that. And having tackle ready and all, with a wire on it 
And knowing that a Wahoo may swim up to the boat, you have to be ready. You don't have much time when, when things like that, that happen. So we'd have 20 rods ready with different scenarios attached to each one, and we'd have them lined up. And we'll already go over the, you know, get this one or that one or, or whatever. And, I'll, you know, when I see the fish, and uh, we, we actually – Caught a lot of world records that way. We'd like a Wahoo swimming up to the boat. Uh, Jean Duvall is one of our, my great female anglers of all time. Uh, I said, grab the six wire. And she, she knew right where it was. We put a chunk on there and caught a 48-pound Wahoo on six pounds. But we would have never, he would have swam away in two or three minutes. And we could have never got rigged up with that fish. So you, you mentioned before the live wells on your boat and you fish a lot of bait, a lot of live bait, and you also use a lot of live bait as chum. In fact, there was an article in Angler's Journal a few years ago, which referred to you as the live bait guru. And that article said that you like to head out with about 60 to 70 pounds of pilchards. That's about 1,500 to 2,000 fish. And that sometimes you'll spend three or four hours making sure you have the bait you need. Could you talk about your philosophies about using live baits, particularly as live bait chum and why you focus so much on live bait? Well, if you ever, when you do it, you'll understand the difference. Uh, I can take you fishing and we can use block chum and we'll catch yellowtails and we'll, we'll catch some bottom fish and we can use dead bait for doing that. Or we can troll and catch a few fish. But when you throw those live pilchards in the mix, Everything shows up. You'll be pitching them and the tunas are biting and you're catching tunas and all of a sudden there's four sailfish up over there and you're doubled up on sailfish and you got a tuna on. And it it just changes the whole day. And I have a lot of people that look at me at 11 o'clock in the morning and they say, are we going fishing? And I said, just please give me a few more minutes. We've spent this much time, but you'll catch more fish in the last three hours of this day than you would have caught all day without any fish. You catch twice a day. So um, that's my philosophy. You, and he, he with the most bait wins because you get out there, you got to throw. <laughs> so you mentioned Wahoo and live bait. I, I know you like live baiting for Wahoo. It's one of those kind, one of the ones you, that everybody says that Captain Trossett really likes live baiting for Wahoo. So tell me about live baiting for Wahoo. What's the strategy here? Well, we usually try to leave with filters. But if we know the Wahoos are there, we caught them the day before, saw them the day before. It's a mad rush out to the speed of the possible. That's the preferred Wahoo bait of all time, uh, or a small bonita. But the speedos live in your well. And fortunately, Key West, we do have a few steady spots where we can get them. Uh, but in a Wahoo day, we're, if we know we're targeting them, we get up before daylight. And we want to be on that bait spot and be done and day pretty much at daylight and have that bait in the water at a little after daylight. And it is a, it's an awesome bite. It's probably my favorite type of fishing when it's on. And the, a lot of people don't realize it, but Wahoos will do do separate things. But when we're catching them on the, uh, on the speedos, we fish them one at a time. So I don't like to have, two fish running and chasing, letting all the other fish chase after them. Because Wahoo, believe it or not, this is a good secret, but they're a lot like uh, dolphins. And they travel in big schools. Um, when you jump in the water and you see five Wahoos, there'll be a hundred around. You just don't know it. And, or can be. And so what I like to do is hook up on the Speedo. Now I may get a double hookup at first because I'm slow trolling, but uh, I get one in, then I fight the other one. I have a bait rig on the spinning rod most of the time. And we'll get to just a minute before we gaff it or we have it in tight, uh, we'll hook another one up because they're there. And, it, you know, we've done 15, 16 in a row that way. Uh, but the reason that I like to do that is if that Wahoo gets off when he's way out there, the rest of the school will follow him. And so – you like the school to get pulled back into the boat again, and then more will stay with the fish in the water as you hook the other one up that's chasing it away. So you're always keeping wahoos around your boat. And another thing is uh, red meat. So you, you have a bonita chunks while you have these fish on, on the live speedos. 
if you're seeing them, start throwing chunks and uh, they'll start slurping the chunks up like candy. And all you do is one, two chunk and another chunk with a hook in it. You're going to get hooked up with them again. So oh, that's great advice. All right, let's put the bait aside for a minute, put it back in the well. And, you know, I've seen a couple of places where you talk about your love for tarpon fishing too, particularly tarpon on the fly. So I want to get you to talk about tarpon, but I'm really kind of interested in Key West tarpon fishing, which in a lot of ways is different from tarpon fishing in places like Boca Grande, the one up by Fort Myers, not Boca Grande Pass, just past the Marquesas. But tell us about why tarpon excite you and your strategies for targeting tarpon on the fly. All right, well, my dad, like I said before, used to go to Bayahana religiously. So I, he loved tarpon. I mean, he he just, that's what he, only fish he wanted to catch. So that fish is special to me that way. And then when I got down here, you know, they're, they're close by. They were, I was living in a trailer park, and I had fortunate to have a channel right next to me that was loaded with tarpon. So I could, my first year, I actually had to work down here. But I could go after work and, and I could just fish for them. But so anymore now, I fish in a bay boat, you know, for the tarpon. So I do a lot of staking up or I'll fish in uh, uh, basins or, you know, not not super flat water. But uh, the fly rod, you know, you can get in these channels late in the evening and into the night. And we use big, dark flies. I like black with some uh, mylar in it. And they'll be six, seven inches long, size of a mullet or something. And all you're trying to do is get them to see the shadow of the fly because they look up when they feed, you know, their eyes are kind of pointed up. And if they can get a, a, a silhouette, they're gonna hammer it. And so that, in the tarpon, that's when they do feed really good. So that's why I like to do it at night. Now in the daytimes, you know, the Marquesas and, and all that, uh, all the big tarpon guys will tell you that, you know, we're down to one o hooks, number one hooks, very small, small flies, maybe one or two inches. The worm flies, the popular one now, uh, and light leaders have really helped and long leaders. So a lot of guys are fishing. I fish like a 12 foot leader with a, a two foot tippet and shock tippet on it. And so that way, when you're casting in the schools of fish, you're cutting into them, but they're not getting totally spooked from the fly line. In fact, you try to keep the fly line way out of the picture, the whole deal. You know, if they see the fly line, they're gonna, gonna run. And think about these fly fish tarpon now, is when I first started in 74, I'm still fishing the same schools of fish that came. They, they get really old, like I'm getting, so I might, I might start getting some new ones, but <laughs> they're they're they've really grown accustomed to the boats, and they have different patterns that they've developed over the years, which I've watched. Um, before they'd swim right up to the boat, bang into the boat. You could cast a four or five inch deceiver out there, or not deceiver, but a stew app, um, orange and grizzly fly, and, and they just gobble it, no problems. And, and now they're finicky. They feel the boat 30, 40 yards away. They'll all bunch up if they're in a string sometimes, if you're in the wrong spot. And then you really don't get a good shot at them because they're just trying to get around you, the object. So. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about uh, the second cut there at the Marquesas and how the, 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 the tarpon come rolling out of there. But as soon as that boat gets onto that flat, they're gone. You know, they, they're much more spooked now than they used to be. So they're still very catchable. And, and we have some guys and, and I'm not a, a big, I, I do a lot of bait fishing. I have some customers that that's all they want to catch is tarpon. So I, I'm a big crab guy right now. I, I like live crabs and I like to find neck down channels where the fish kind of get uh, sucked into a, a smaller area as they're going back into a basin. Uh, but as they're entering it, you're in there. You, you're going to get more shots because you're in their zone. So. so for tarpon, do you prefer pass crabs or peelers? Uh, I just use the blue crabs in Key West. Peelers, yeah. yeah, we don't get too many. We could get the pass crabs, but they don't live too good in them. 
Gotcha. But they are fantastic at Boca Grande. I mean, at, um, yeah, Boca Grande, but also up around Tampa and stuff. I fish those fish around Egmont Key, and it's quite exciting. Yeah, indeed. All right, so let's talk about kingfish because you've got a penchant for targeting kings on fly, which is not something a lot of people do. In fact, I've heard stories about your epic fly fishing for kings with Pat Ford. Could you uh, talk about your uh, talk about kings on the fly? Yeah, those are as close to a wahoo as I could get, but they're very readily available. Uh, we have some great bottom on the Gulf side of Key West that. Uh, Really nice fish get on. They're 20 to 40 pounders. They'll be smaller sometimes and, you know, average a little bigger sometimes. But uh, then again, it's uh, the, the real key to catching those kingfish is getting anchored up where they're at. And they're, they're going to live on a rock pile or, you know, they're hanging around because of the bait. They'll be scattered out. They don't really school that tight in the Gulf that often anymore. Uh, and block them. That's my key, block chum and pilchard. But the block chum, I get that going and get that scent line going out. And then you just pitch your pilchards and get the fish all fired up, jump it in the air. You can have them, you know, they'll do many things. But the block chum really seems to keep them centered behind your boat. And I, they're not running off to each side. They'll, they'll start swimming right back up under the boat and attack the flies going away from the which I've seen a lot of times. Uh, I think the day you're, Pat Ford and I have caught many of them on fly, but we had one day west of Key West, about 50 miles, and uh, we just about to leave the place. We had it, oh, man, there's nothing here. It's like they shouldn't be here, da -da, and the tide just started to switch, started going back in, and all of a sudden that bait, the chum, block chum was going down the edge of the reef, and all of a sudden I seen them. Fish skyrocket. Oh, she's quarter mile back. I'm going like, oh my gosh, they're here. So we just kept feeding him and finally got him in. He he we got, I don't know how many we caught over 30 pounds. It was an epic day. It was maybe 20 fish. We caught him up in the 40s. And uh it was, you know, he took some of the most some of the greatest photographs of jumping kingfish forever. See, we were using a hookless uh Zero spook, they make these magnum ones. And they would just fire on them things. And one time we I made a cast and we had gotten all the pictures. I mean, it's crazy. And we were just talking and I made a cast and I I stopped working at about 20 feet from the boat. And then I thought about it. I said, uh-oh, when I move this, something's gonna hammer it. <laughs> so I just started to try to wind it in as fast as I could. And about a 35-pounder nailed it straight at the boat, came in. Fortunately, he was turning a little bit. His gills hit me on the leg, and he went into the boat. And just, we had we got him out. But he, if his hit me with those teeth, with his mouth open, that would have been a bad thing. Oh, yeah, no doubt about that. You know, you get flying kings or flying kudas, and that, that's some that's a, a razor torpedo coming at you. Yeah. They, uh, my favorite flies for the kings are blue and white. They don't have to be real big. In fact, I'm down to about a three-inch highly mylard uh, fly. And then, you, of course, you want current. That's what keeps them lined up behind your boat. And you can make a cast and uh, – you can cast straight back and strip it in, and that's good. But you need a sink tip or a sinking, a full sinking line really helps. And you can kitty quarter cast or cast just a little off off the current side. Give it time to sink. And it's a lot like trout fishing for rainbow trout. Like when it comes to the end and, and, and stops, it'll trigger a bite. You don't even have to uh, strip it. I mean, you get a lot of your bites just as it tails into the into the current when it stops. So, and I, I do give it a lot of time sitting there. A lot of times I'll backstrip a little bit a couple times before I strip it back in just to give it a little more time back in the chum. With those teeth on the Kings, are you putting wire on your tippet or are you just going regular tippet? Uh, no, we use wire definitely. Uh, it depends on the size of the fish and, and the clarity of the water. Uh, I go as low as 36 pound and 
I prefer 50, 50, what is it? Number six, 50 something pound, number five, 58 pound. And I'll go a little heavier sometimes if you start getting broke off. But you have to, you have to change it quite often. You don't want to, if you get the little bends in it, whatever, you'll end up getting. First of all, they won't bite it if the, if the leader is not perfectly straight also. You really have to have a straight leader. I have a wire straightener. I'll use it on one or two fish. If a world record fishing, we won't use a wire straightener. If we get a bent wire, we change it because you don't want to. But if you're catching lots of fish and just having fun, what the heck's losing one. So. All right. So tell me about tuna, especially blackfin tuna, and what your preferred approach, approaches are for targeting blackfin. Filters, filters, and more filters. <laughs> That's one of the ways. The first way we started fishing tunas in, uh, was the Gulf of Mexico. And we used to make the time runs. So if you made a time run, you really couldn't go to a shrimp boat because they were usually out of the way. So on a couple of occasions, I found the sediment, which is one of the closer wrecks. Um, and I saw a shrimp boat. And so I figured, well, I can leave my buoy here and I can go to the shrimp boat, get me some trash and get back here and use it for the ferment and the cobias that were there. So we put a big jug buoy out and took the ride to the shrimp boat, which was, they're visible for about five miles. And this one was just at that. Took my heading and uh, we pulled up behind the shrimp boat and uh, Joan Garisso in the boat. She's great light tackle, tackle angler herself. She's fished with me for, oh my gosh, it's 76 or seven, something like that. And we were together, just her and I. And uh, so I sent her up to the front. Stripper's going to do, not real rough, but a little bouncy. And I sent her up to the front to get this 40 pound basket of bait. And when he handed it down to her, she kind of lost her balance and uh, trash hit the deck and went overboard and we looked down and there's 30, 40 blackfin tunas boiling up into the slick and I'm going like, hmm. <laughs> it's like we're going to be fishing here the rest of the day. <laughs> so I got another bat, a couple of baskets of bait and uh, if I recall, we caught a, several met records that day and uh, broke some several met records, fly and spin, plug, all the different divisions we went through. And everybody's wondering, where the heck did you catch those tunas, RT? And it's like, oh, yeah, way down there, past Cosgrove Light. They're up on the surface going crazy. So that was before pilchards, or right at the beginning of pilchards. And now the, we still do the tunas in the Gulf. It's gotten a lot crowded, or people know how to do it. It's a very simple thing to do. You just run boat to boat, throw some trash. The tunas show up, you say, if they don't, you're going to catch millions of little tuning while you're at it and occasionally a huge cobia or cobias will swim up behind the boat and get it. You mentioned but, the Sturdivant and the permit there. Do you ever do permit on the target wreck? Oh yeah. I've done permit on pretty much every wreck there is out there. So. Yeah, it's That's a good one. Favorite. Oh yeah. So Captain Trossett, this has been a fantastic conversation, but before I wrap it up, I do want to ask you our traditional final question. Now, given the sheer numbers of fish and various species you've caught throughout your life, what's your grail fish? What's the one fish that's still out there on your bucket list, that one fish you still want to get? Well, a quick story, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, I've already caught one. <laughs> I caught my bucket list fish. When I was a teenager, I was looking at Field of Stream or whatever. And I saw these giant dog tooth tuna they were catching in Vietnam or someplace. And these were 200 pounders or I don't know, it's crazy back then. And I saw that fish and I said, I want to catch one of those fish. And, you know, I never went anywhere they were at and everything. In 2006, I was lucky enough to get invited on a long range trip out of Carnes, Australia. And we went for a month. Wow. On this mothership trip, it was absolutely insane. And we troll off, we, well, we take the mothership out 260 miles to this uh, Willets Island. And this is untouched Great Barrier, or not Great Barrier Reef, it's the Willets Island Reef. And uh, we, we got, the day we got there, it was a three day trip, I think. The day we got there, it was like, well, we're going out this afternoon. And the guy that I went with had, brought a couple other people 
And he caught his fish. He got a 60-pound yellowfin tuna or something. We're just dragging lures. And his buddies caught a wahoo, and one of them caught a giant trevally or something going on and off the reef. And then it was my turn. And I'd never caught one. And the whole situation was like, all right. And this 30-pound rod goes off, and it's smoking. And I say, buddy, you pay this is this is a giant fish. You need to take it. Now it's your fish. So I fight a fish for about 45 minutes and I get it up. Lo and behold, it's a dog tooth tuna. It weighed 162 and a half pounds on 30 pound test. It was the IGFA world record. And so my bucket list fish, my first one was an IGFA world record. The biggest one I'll ever catch. So that's cool. But for now, I, I, I really, if my next trip to do something, uh, I'd probably like to catch a golden Dorado or a pariah. One of those fish in South America, back in the Amazon. I think that would be a great adventure. So, oh, that that would be so much fun. I, I got to hear the story when you get it too. So, okay, uh, yeah, yeah. Those dog tooth tuna are some mean looking fish too. You know, they just look angry all the time. We caught quite a few on fly. Hal Chittam had set the trip up, and uh, he had caught some in one hundred thirty some pound range on fly, and we hooked them. But that fish likes to run to the reef. He he's got an air bladder. So, you know, when you bring them up, you get them halfway up and they start like an amberjack, they'll start spinning. So they're catchable that big, but they like to go to the bottom of the reef. And if you don't get on the outside of the reef before the fish, he's going to get you around a coral head or a rock of some sort. And we've, we had a few do that to us, but I caught them 80 pounds, which was, I thought really cool. That's fantastic. Oh, I'm so jealous. I want to do more of that. Captain Trossett, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me today. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for being on the Rodcast. Well, thanks, Sid. Pleasure since meeting you at the ICAST. I've been wanting to do it, but we just hadn't been able to get together. So it's great we did. Well, I'm glad we connected. And, um, you know, maybe we'll get to shake hands again down your way when I get back to Key West in a couple of weeks. So um, thank you, sir. Thank you. them hound dogs are barking so i guess it's time for a bourbon break which is just fine by me because i do indeed like a good bourbon and i also like a break so taking a bourbon break right about now seems like a win-win now once in a while when i am perusing the liquor store i grab a bottle i've never heard of before just to give it a try and that's precisely what happened for today's bourbon break I saw a bottle of New Riff Single Barrel Bourbon, grabbed it on a whim, gave it a pour, and now you're stuck listening to me ramble about it. Now, the New Riff webpage makes clear that New Riff is, just as the name says, a new riff on an old tradition of Kentucky bourbons. Founded in 2014, New Riff is, and I quote here, led by a team of corporate refugees ranging from craft beer to politics and more. And the folks at New Riff have a sim simple mission, and again, this is a quote from their webpage, to someday be counted among the world's great small distilleries. Becoming one of the great small distilleries of the world is a long-term plan with no exact ring to win or title to be declared. Now, they tell us that New Riff is, again, quote here, independently owned by one family, and that independence, the freedom from outside pressures and interest, has allowed us to make an unforeseen declaration for quality. For perhaps the first time since the inception of the Bottled and Bond Act in 1897, a Kentucky sour mash whiskey distillery has committed itself exclusively to that quality standard, the world's highest. And again, that's straight off of the New Riff webpages. So, basically, like so many other distillers out there, they want to claim new ways of doing old quality, and I'm good with that. They make a bourbon, a rye, a single-barrel bourbon, a malted rye, and a Kentucky wild gin. Of course, it was the bottle that caught my eye. The top half of this bottle is black, like wrought iron, and it fades about midway down the bottle to let the bourbon show through in a dark amber color that when the light hits it, the amber seems to glow a bit, giving the whole bottle an appearance of iron being forged, a cooling red hot at the base, tapering up to the cool iron black at the top. 
The bottle looks elegant, but in the way a well-crafted horseshoe conveys elegance and strength. Now, the bourbon itself has a unique mash bill coming in at 65% corn, 30% rye, and 5% malted barley. That makes this not only a corn-heavy bourbon, well, well above the 51% mash bill that a bourbon has to have to be a bourbon, which contributes a lot of the sweetness to the bourbon, and it's also a rye-heavy bourbon with that 30% rye count. Now, the new riff is aged only four years in new charred oak barrels and comes in at 51.9% alcohol or just under 104 proof. That rye and corn-heavy mash bill are pretty evident in the nose, and you get a lot of sweet scents here, toffee, brown sugar, dark stewing fruits, and a slight yeasty scent there too, like warm bread almost. The palate is dominated by the rye and the corn, a very sweet opening with caramel and vanilla and toasted marshmallows, and maybe a touch of sweet citrus. The rye shows up in full blossom of spice, but what caught my attention was the way that the oak shows up in a nice smoky accent and a touch of herbal flavor, something I would not have expected in a bourbon aged only four years. Interestingly, it's that herbal flavor that takes center stage in the finish. The sweet flavors are still there, lingering a bit, but it's the herbal taste that dominate the finish, giving it a very earthy kind of finish. But you know, I think too that it's in the finish that the greenness of the bourbon comes through. That is, after only four years of aging, the bourbon hasn't aged quite enough to offer a dynamic flavor. Sure, it's sweet and certainly palatable, but it's a bit different from a lot of the other new bourbons out there, but I guess I need to just admit that I prefer bourbon with a few more miles under its shoes. I will say, though, that for a bottle that runs between 45 and 55 bucks, it's okay for that price point. That is, this is a bourbon that can hold its own against other $50 bottles, but it's definitely a different pour than a lot of the other $50 bottles out there. So yeah, the new Riff single barrel bourbon is okay. Not great, but okay. And those are my thoughts about the new Riff single bourbon barrel. Single barrel bourbon. Rubber baby bubby bunkers or something. As always, before we go, and as a final note and my regular disclaimer, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break Reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am, as always, open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The whiskeys I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of whiskey know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. And yes, yeah, speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to the Ganicky Bar in the Ganicky Sports Center on the campus of the University of Stirling in Stirling, Scotland, where I turned 21 and learned the valuable lesson that that is that one, if one is to attempt to drink 21 shots on one's 21st birthday, it is not wise to let your friends tell you that each of the 21 shots have to be a different spirit. And so let me also give a shout out to the pharmacy in the University of Sterling Student Union, where I spent part of the day after my 21st birthday purchasing aspirin, 7-Up, and Alka-Seltzer before returning to my dorm room, where I would spend the first 48 hours of my 21st year praying that I might survive the first week of said 21st year. So with Scotland in mind, let me raise a glass and turn to the words of old Robert Burns. Here's a bottle and an honest friend. What would you wish for more, man? What kinds before his life may end? What his share may be of care, man? Then catch the moments as they fly and use them as ye ought, man. Believe me, happiness is shy and comes not I when sought, man. As always, if you've got comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. Now let's get back to casting. All right, it is time for this week's top 10. And this week, I want to count down my top 10 favorite popping corks. And yes, I get that a few of you are rolling your eyes and thinking, all popping corks are the same. It doesn't matter which one you choose, but I am here to tell you, my listening crew, that such is not the case. Different popping corks designs do different things. 
I will also say that my top 10 popping cork list was inspired by an article I wrote for Florida Sportsman back in May of 2021, in which I talk about how popping corks have become so much more than those iconic red and white bobbers we used as kids and how to rig and use popping corks. Those iconic little bobbers, by the way, have evolved dramatically into the contemporary popping cork, and they no longer operate solely as strike indicators. Manufactured in a variety of shapes and sizes and materials, the contemporary float now functions as an active part of our bait and lure delivery strategies. Many anglers continue to use popping corks just to keep the baits off the bottom and as strike indicators, but really, that's a lot like having the newest smartphone and using it just as, well, you know, a phone. The contemporary popping cork provides a dynamic strategy for enticing fish to the bait or lure beyond simply letting you know when you get a bite. Popping corks, once just a simple piece of floating material like cork or styrofoam, now come in a range of options. Some come rigged with wire stems and clacking beads and bearings. Some are simple, simply slitted little pieces of styrofoam. They're available weighted and unweighted, rigged and unrigged. But no matter the kind you use, popping corks are designed to entice fish, not to merely keep baits off the bottom or to signal a strike. That is, popping corks are an active part of presentation. When fish feed, they generally find prey by way of three primary senses, smell of prey in the water, visual recognition of prey, and sounds of prey moving in the water. While your choice of bait or lure can provide any or all of these sensory stimuli, popping corks are specifically designed to add auditory stimuli to your rig. The kind of popping cork you use, the way you rig it, and the way you deliver and work it can all affect your success in catching. The tandem action between the pop of the cork and the coordinated sudden movement of the lure below it provides a remarkably effective inshore strike enticing strategy. Unfortunately, one of the things I'm not going to do in this countdown is teach you how to use a popping cork because this is a top 10 countdown and not an instructional video course. But remember that a popping cork is not a bobber, nor is it just a strike indicator. It is a key component in attracting fish and enticing strikes. It contributes to both the visual and the auditory sensory response form for a, for a fish. But they have to be worked, not left to dead drift bait or a lure. In fact, where I'm from, there's a derogatory term for anglers who just use their corks as floats or indicators. We call those folks line draggers. Around here, you don't want to be called a line dragger. That's pretty much worse than being called a Guggen, and it certainly calls to question your prowess as an angler. So with that in mind, let's take a look at 10 really great popping corks. And let's start at number 10 with Livingston Lures Grand Slam Popper 4. And let me say, this is an anomalous popping cork in my top 10 list today, because unlike the other popping corks I'll discuss, the Livingston popping cork actually encases what Livingston Lures calls EBS technology. What this is is a tiny internal circuit board in the sound chamber that emits the sound of an injured bait fish. The electronics are engaged when the popper hits the water. The poppers are encased in a hard plastic and are available in six color options. This really may be the next generation of popping corks because they add these electronic sounds in addition to the pop. Okay, at number nine, I've got Versamax Bolt Pro Series. Now, one of the things that I really like about the Versamax is that unlike just about any other popper out there, the Versamax has a feature on the leader end of the popper that allows you to easily adjust the length of the leader under the popping cork without having to cut and retie the line. This allows you to move, say, from six feet of water to two feet of water without having to trim back your leader. I also like the durability of the no-kink titanium through-wire on this popper. And I also like that Versamax sells these poppers in three packs for around 30 bucks. All right, and number eight, let me go with Bomber Paradise Extreme Popping Cork. I love that we even have popping corks now that are extreme. And oh, I'm not talking about that Boston-based semi-metal band from the mid-80s. No, I'm talking extreme popping cork. Now, the Extreme Paradise is specifically designed for rigging over a Carolina rig, but you can rig it other ways too. I really like the Paradise's Extreme titanium through wire and the configuration of the metal weights below the popper and the beads above. The weights really add to the castability of this rig. I will say that the Paradise Extreme 
is a very splashy popper. It's got a broad cupped top surface that when popped really disturbs and throws water. They do come in an oval version too, which are still a great design, but I prefer the popper version because of its splashy disposition. They're about eight bucks a piece and are available in orange, pink, and yellow. Okay, coming in at the Mickey Mantle position, that's old number seven for those of you who didn't catch my illusion there. Didn't get the Mantle 7 connection? How about the Ronaldo position? John Elway, Barry Bonds, Pete Maravich, Camelo Anthony, Michael Vick, Randall Cunningham, Ben Roethlisberger, Joe Maurer, Joe Theismann, Kenny Lofton, Doug Flutie, Phil Esposito. I could go on and on of the great number sevens out there. Hell, I devoutly wore number seven throughout my high school, college, and post-college athletic career. And don't get me started on that old number seven, Jack Daniels. But today's great number seven is given up to Fairhope Rattle Oval Popping Cork Float for Redfish. And yes, for this one, I'm going to the oval version, which I suppose technically isn't a popping cork, despite its contribution to the auditory and visual attractance of a rig. One of the things that I love about this cork, and maybe it's just the marketing of it as such, but Fairhope designed this float specifically for targeting redfish. Of course, they also tell us it's great for speckled trout, sheepshead flounder, triple tail, puppy drum, bass, blackfish, Spanish mackerel, and even Crevel Jack, which I would normally call Jack Crevel around here, but that's their word for it. But I love the idea that the cork has been designed to create a clacking sound that might specifically be attractive to reds. That's just great if it's the case. It also opens up a great market for species-specific popping corks. Just a little bit of R&D to fine-tune the sounds on each cork and the, that each cork emits to the sound that each species seems to react most to. Now that would be an extreme popping cork on steroids. Okay, at number six, I'm going with the thick fish. It's THK fish, so thick fish, weighted bobbers for saltwater fishing. The thing that sets these apart from pretty much all of the other popping corks I'm talking about is that rather than coming pre-rigged with a stiff through wire with rigging loops at the top and bottom, the thick fish popping corks are rigged with a stainless steel coated leader that runs through the float. Each end of the leader is rigged with a barrel swivel for connecting the float to the lure or to the bait below the cork and at the top for tying to your main line. These barrel swivels also allow the float to spin independently of the main line, reducing knots and tangles. They come in about six different sizes with a few color options and can be found in three or four packs ranging in price from about 13 bucks up to about 19 bucks. Okay, this week's monkey in the middle goes to Bet's Billy Boy weighted popping floats for the number five position. Now, it makes sense that these popping corks are sitting here in the middle of the list because these really are the quintessential OG of the popping cork world. These are the white foam corks with the red stripe at the top and the plastic stick for plugging the hole that runs through the middle of the cork that you will inevitably lose and try to replace with a bamboo shish kebab skewer. These are the floats you pick up in multiple sizes by the handfuls because they are the floats you always want to have around. This is one of the most basic and basically designed popping cork out there. The popping cork is so universal, so lacking any specific detail that allows it to stand out in any way that online retailers like Bass Pro and Amazon, they don't even include a written description of this popping cork. The name says it all. That's it. Nothing more. But these are your old reliables, the corks that you will always have around. And at about three or four bucks a piece or cheaper when you buy them in bulk, these are the reasonably priced corks you can afford to have a bunch of on hand. Okay, roaring in here at number four is the DOA Clacker Popping Cork. The first thing I should note about the DOA Popping Cork is that you can buy them just as popping corks or you can get them pre-rigged as the Deadly Combo which comes rigged with a DOA shrimp, the original Mark Nichols design shrimp. But the popping corks from DOA, and yes, there's an oval version and a thin version too, but these are really ideally weighted and they add to your casting distance. The clackers and the beads in this are great, and the cone-shaped popping cork version has a great broad top surface that creates great splash when popped. This is a reliable popper and rig. All right, at number three, Bet's Billy Bay Adjustable Bobber has a few great features that make it somewhat unique in the popping cork universe. 
As the name says, the popper is designed to let anglers quickly adjust the depth at which they're fishing by changing the length of the leader below the cork. Now, the one snag with the adjustable system is that the popping cork comes with three small pieces, a barrel swivel, a small piece of thread wrapped on a piece of plastic, and a bead. I cannot tell you how many times I've lost these little pieces and rigged Billy Bay Popper the way Betts was not able to rig them the way that uh, Billy Bay Popper, the way uh, Betts had intended. Nonetheless, when rigged appropriately or not, the Billy Bay Popping Cork is a great distance casting cork, and it has great noise-making features. All right, in the runner-up position, at number two, I've got the Cajun Thunder from Precision Tackle Incorporated. I also have to say that choosing the Cajun Thunder is kind of arbitrary among the Precision Tackle list of popping corks because I use so many of these corks regularly, and they are all really great designs. The Cajun Thunder, though, is a weighted version of the Equalizer series of corks that Precision makes. Precision also makes Little Thunder, Back Bay Thunder, Cajun Thunder Magnum, and Blue Water Thunder. But it's the Cajun Thunder that I'm pimping here today, because probably it's so popular across the Gulf states, so I pay a lot of attention to it. I really like the design of the two solid brass beads and the two large plastic beads on this popper, which is a change from its equalizer iteration, which features an eight-bead noisemaker configuration on the through wire. The brass beads not only intensify the bait click, but also transfer weight from the leader to the Cajun Thunder, which enhances the action of the live bait or an artificial jig run under the popper. The added weight also allows for longer casts. Okay, so that almost brings us to the checkered flag, but the white flag is out, so let's recap, and let's take a recap lap. At number 10, Livingston Lures Grand Slam Popper. At nine, Versamax Bolt Pro Series. At eight, Bombers Paradise Extreme. At seven, Fairhope Rattle Oval Popping Cork Float for Redfish. At six, the Thick Fish Fishing Bobber Fishing Float Weighted Bobber for Fishing Popper Cork Float. Rig Rattle Popping Cork Weighted Popping Float Saltwater Fishing. That's actually the name that is listed on the webpage. I think they're just trying to hit all of the HTML tags to get anybody who Googles anything close to a bobber to find this one. All right, at number five, Bet's Billy Boy Popping Floats at four DOA Clacker Popping Cork. At three, Bet's Billy Bay Adjustable Popping Cork. At two, the Cajun Thunder. And bringing us to my favorite popping cork, that's Four Horsemen's four-inch popping corks. Now, Four Horsemen is a great South Louisiana company that only produces popping corks and pre-rigged artificial shrimp called the Boom Boom Shrimp, which pair ideally with the Four Horsemen popping corks. Now, even though Four Horsemen makes a bunch of types of popping corks, for this number one honor, I'm thinking specifically of the four-inch popping cork, the one that is sort of cone-shaped. I clarify this because Four Horsemen does make several kinds of popping corks, including the cone-shaped popping cork I'm giving the number one spot to, but they also make it in a three-inch model, which is their most popular popping cork, and they make it in a five-inch version. They also make oval-shaped popping corks, skinny popping corks, and some really great armor popping corks, which are a version of the oval cork and the three-inch popping cork, which are then coated in a plastic armor, making them very durable and rugged. But as I said, it's the four-inch version I'm naming as my favorite popping cork to use. And that's because the four-inch version does much better in windier and choppier conditions. It's great in calm weather too, but the three-inch is really the ideal in calm water since its size reduces its overall visibility a bit. The five-inch is also great in windy, choppy conditions, but it's just a bit too big for my taste. Also, the four-inch version is just heavy enough for maximum capacity maximum casting capacity without being light like the three inch or too heavy and too splashy like the five inch. Also, I like that flat popping surface ratio but to the body length of the cork on the four inch. And I think it produces a more significant water disruption than the three inch. And that five inch creates a tad too much disturbance. You know, I guess I'm just taking the three bears approach to the three cork sizes here. One too small, one too big, and one that's just right. All of the Four Horsemen corks are available in five color options, and as far as I've been able to tell, color selection in a popping cork is really about personal preference and what color is most visible to you in the water conditions where you're fishing. So those are my thoughts about popping corks, and that's the Fishing Professor's Top 10 for the week. 
As usual, if you want to let me know your thoughts about this week's top 10, if you have popping corks you think I should be looking at, or if you're a manufacturer and you want to alert me to your popping cork, just shoot me an email at sid at inventivefishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. And that's it for this week's top 10. Let's get back to casting. Well, as heartbreaking as it is, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Rodcast. I want to thank Captain R.T. Trossett for taking the time to talk with me today. I find that I learned so much for conversations with seasoned and expert guides like Captain Trossett, and I can't thank him enough for his generosity and willingness to share his insights with us today. Hey, I do hope you enjoyed my thoughts about New Rift Single Barrel Bourbon to be worth listening to, and I hope that my countdown of my top 10 popping corks provided a little insight into the value and differences between the different types of popping corks. Now, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The marina is full. I say again, the marina is full. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday of next week. And I hope you and all of the members of my listening crew will continue to spread the word about the Rodcast. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10's Bourbon Breaks interviews or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter or Instagram and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all of the great video content over at the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a whole bunch of other great content. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on. The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on.